That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. I'm honored to be with you tonight. And as always, we've got a strong show lined up for tonight. So let's get after it. In 2010... Bob McDonnell was elected governor of Virginia. He was a rising star in Republican politics, and many in the media saw him as a future frontrunner for the White House. In 2012, it was said that Bob McDonnell was being considered for the VP spot on the Republican ticket. He was an officer in the United States Army and Army Reserve. He was a successful business owner before his election as governor. He is a patriot, and he often talked about how much he loved his state and his country. And on election night, the people of Virginia showed that the feelings were mutual. He won by nearly 19 points. In short order, he got to work for the people of Virginia. He cut taxes and spending, lowered unemployment, and brought thousands of jobs to Virginia. Four years later, in January of 2014, Governor Bob McDonnell left office with a 55% approval rating. But just 10 days after leaving office, something happened that changed the lives of Bob McDonnell and his family forever. He was indicted by a federal prosecutor who claimed that he had engaged in corrupt acts for a personal friend. The prosecutors pointed to gifts given to McDonnell, all legally received under Virginia law, by the owner of a business. Now, no evidence of quid pro quo ever surfaced, no evidence of corruption, no link between a campaign contribution and a vote or a contract was ever proven. You just had a zealous prosecutor who wanted to make headlines. The so-called investigation into Bob McDonald lasted over a year, and it took place when, during the election season, the voters of Virginia were deciding who would succeed him to the office of governor. To the surprise of few, the prosecution worked with the mainstream media, and they leaked salacious and damaging details. And as it would happen, the Democratic candidate, Terry McAuliffe, would win in a slim margin, less than two points, while the Republican incumbent was slandered day in and day out by the prosecution, by the media, and by politicians. In order to charge the governor, prosecutors came up with a new legal theory. Very simply, they played with words. They tried to change the definition of bribery to make it fit the case. And for a while, it seemed that their plan was successful. The trial, that lasted five weeks, was as high profile as a case can get. And looking back, it's clear that the prosecutors were willing to do any and everything it might take to win, even if it meant bending the law. The McDonald children were threatened with obstruction of justice charges if they were unwilling to cooperate with the people trying to put their dad in prison. After three days of deliberation, the jury announced guilty verdicts against Bob McDonald and his wife. Now, immediately, Governor McDonald lost his teaching job at a local university, and shortly thereafter, the governor was sentenced 
to two years in federal prison for a crime that wasn't a crime. But of course, the facts didn't matter. The national media pounced on the opportunity to write headlines. Now, at that time, some might have given up hope. But Bob McDonald did the opposite. From the very beginning, he promised to work as long and as hard as it took to prove his innocence and to get the facts out. And he did just that. He remained free while he appealed the decision to the United States Circuit Court of Appeals. You'd think that after the misconduct demonstrated in the first trial that it would be common sense to reverse the decision, but unfortunately for Bob McDonald, it wasn't. The court upheld the conviction and it appeared that the former governor was on his way to prison. That, of course, was followed by a new wave of nasty articles and political attacks. The prosecution attacked the McDonald family. They attacked him with taxpayer money, but made him pile up a legal bill in the tens of millions of dollars. But again, Bob McDonald didn't stop fighting. And he appealed to the highest court in the country, the United States Supreme Court. For months, he and his family were unsure if the justices would even take the case, and there was certainly no guarantee then that he would be exonerated if they did. At one point, the U.S. Solicitor General, one of the top officials in the justice system, requested that the Supreme Court not hear the case. But in January of 2016, the court announced it would hear the case, and it would decide if Bob McDonnell, at one time one of the country's top leaders, would have to go to federal prison. For nearly two months, the high court heard the case, and on June 27, 2016, while America was entranced and involved in the 2016 election between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, it was announced that Bob McDonnell was fully and completely exonerated. Not by a majority of the Supreme Court, but by a unanimous decision. Liberal justices and conservative justices, after two years of brutal and heinous attacks by political opponents, by journalists, by his own government, the case against Bob McDonnell was thrown out. In fact, the Supreme Court rejected the entire premise of the case that was started years earlier. And they did so to ensure that that kind of abuse wouldn't take place again. Not shouldn't take place in Virginia, and it shouldn't take place anywhere in America. After the decision, the Wall Street Journal editorial board had this to say. They said, quote, There's been a disturbing trend in recent years has been the willingness of prosecutors to stretch the law in order to win high-visibility convictions. This means ambitious prosecutors can indict anyone short of St. Francis of Assisi. Well, joining me now in studio is my friend, a man of great integrity and great faith, the former governor of Virginia, Bob McDonald. Bob, it's great to have you here. Well, thanks, Eric, and it's great to be on here new in your, uh, in your new show uh, so early in your time. Thank Th you. Thank you very much. So, Bob, obviously, Supreme Court's in the news. Uh, you, perhaps more than many Americans, appreciate the importance of the Supreme Court, both from uh, your time practicing the law, your time as governor, and obviously you had a Supreme Court which completely vindicated and exonerated you. When you think about Amy Coney Barrett likely being confirmed today, what do you think this means for the Supreme Court? You know, there are very few decisions that a president gets to make and a Senate gets to act upon that are as uh, important for the yes. future of the country as this one. I mean, I, was, I walked in there that day in, uh, in April of 2016, the court of last resort with my last chance with one hour that would determine the outcome of yes. my life. And I was incredibly fortunate that they uh, ruled unanimously and wrote an opinion in very strong language, Justice yes. Roberts, uh, in my favor. 
Uh, but, you know, Amy Comey Barrett, uh, of course, I'm a Notre Dame fan and yes. a Notre Dame grad, so I'm <laughs> right, a, a big right? fan of yes. hers. I had a chance to meet her when I taught out there a couple of years yeah. ago. But uh, what I really like about her is when you look at what the founders uh, wrote in the Federalist Papers about judicial power and about being a, uh, being uh, finding people that would find and declare the law, that would simply apply the facts to the law as written by the legislature and render a decision, yes. not substitute your own judgment, yes. not give new meaning to the words that the founders intended. Uh, the type of people that I think they had in mind, especially reading the Federalist Papers, is uh, is somebody like Amy Comey Barrett. So I, I am so glad that she's now uh, her her nomination is now in the on the floor of the Senate. And I think there's every reason to believe she will be confirmed and very likely could be a deciding vote in uh, the next president of the United States if uh, some of the challenges that are likely to come up are going to be heard by the court. Yeah. And just and very briefly in the time we have left in, in this segment, I know you're going you're gonna to stay with us, um, what do you think her confirmation would mean for President Trump's legacy? There's no question. Over 200 federal judges confirmed. Uh, and constitutionalists, originalists, people who apply the yes. law as originally intended, uh, as Congress wrote it, is critically important for the future of the republic. Activists on the right or left are equally bad, and uh, she's going to be one of those people, I think, uh, that uh, people on the right and left will be proud of. If you pass the law and it means this, she'll interpret it that way, yes. and you'll get a fair decision. You won't have to guess where she stands. Absolutely. Well, folks, stay, stay right with us. We're going to be right back with Bob McDonald. We're going to be talking about the current state of justice in America, his faith, the future of our country, his continued service um, to, to veterans um, and to others. And we'll be right back with you in just a minute. Stay right with us. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Now we're going to continue our conversation with Bob McDonald. Uh, so, Bob, you know, Stalin's head of the secret police uh, once said, show me the man and I'll show you the crime. The idea was that Stalin would target people for political prosecutions. Um, you were obviously targeted for a political prosecution. I have some personal experience of this as well. We've seen a lot of police officers around the country targeted in political prosecutions. What do you, where do you think we're at today in terms of people's confidence in the justice system? And how, it, how do you think these political prosecutions have started to undermine people's confidence in, in the American justice system? Well, Eric, I think you know and agree, yes. being in the military yourself yes. and being the governor, commander of a National yes. Guard, we've got the best law enforcement officers yes. and the best justice system in the world. Yes. But it's not perfect right. because it's made up of human beings and they yes. have biases and they have failings, as we do. Yes. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, another way of phrasing that yeah. uh, horrific Stalin quote is yeah. you find your defendant, then you go and build your case. Yeah. And the problem is we have 
uh, about 5,500 federal criminal laws. Mm. Most of those, if you look at the founders' intent under the Ninth and Tenth Amendment, were always supposed to be in part of the police powers reserved to the states. Yes. But we have made so many, and they're long and they're vague. In my case, Justice Stephen Breyer, yeah. liberal Democrat, said on the bench during an oral argument, he said, this case represents uh, the greatest separation of powers problem as I've ever seen because a federal prosecutor is virtually uncontrollable and we can't let the executive branch basically substitute their judgment for the legislature. That's yes. what was his inference. And, and he was absolutely right, uh, because if you do that, you can twist these words and then with uh, all the resources of the federal government coming against a defendant, uh, just crush them. And that happens to a lot of defendants, yeah. unfortunately. I was fortunate to have resources and also to have two of the greatest law firms in the country mm. that believed in the case, believed that I was uh, that I was being treated uh, yeah. unfairly. And it's been happening on both sides. I think uh, there's been Democratic governors under Republican justice departments and vice versa that have uh, been on the wrong side of prosecutions that with, with restraint should never have happened. So yeah. I think it's good for presidents to take a real hard look. And Bill Barr has said this and yes. done it. Uh, at the justice system and make sure that there's equal justice under the law. Whether you're a governor or whether you're right. a poor inner city kid, you should yeah. have the same equal justice and not try to hang a governor or senator just because he's got a big title and you get a credit to, you know, on your resume. That's wrong too. Yeah, well look, I, I think anytime people feel like anyone is, is targeted for, for whatever reason, it undermines <clears throat> confidence in the law. A right? Absolutely. And, and this is one of the things that's always held the republic together is that people have had this belief that though it's obviously justice has always been administered imperfectly, that we've always at least aspired to have equal justice under the law uh, for everyone. And I, it's really it's important the that we get there. basic consequence, uh, you know, American value. And yeah. if, we, if we lose that and then the people lose confidence, we are in deep trouble in America. Because the rule of law is the linchpin of the yes. Anglo-American legal system, the American tradition. Yes. So uh, that's really true, Eric. Yeah. So let, let's shift gears for, for a minute. Uh, you look back over the course of the last summer, a lot of our viewers saw, they saw it in the media, some of them saw it in their hometowns, the rioting, the looting. We've seen this, this you know, uh, tremendous uh, concern in the country over public safety. There are also like issues of race that have come up. People are talking about them. There are topics of the presidential debate. Meanwhile, you've been doing some really quiet and hopeful work on the issue of race in Virginia. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing. It's been 400 years since the first enslaved people walked off a boat. Yes at Fort Monroe, now Fort Monroe, Virginia, Hampton, yeah. Virginia. My predecessor, Governor George Yardley, did that first deal, slave deal in 1619. Virginia was the capital of Confederacy, but yet we had the first black governor. So we're, mm -hmm. a, we're a state of contrast. Yes. And I just felt, Eric, that, uh, and you were with me when we yes. commemorated that 400 yes. tradition yes. At, Fort, at Fort Monroe, but I felt that this is a time where with 25 years to go before America becomes a majority non-white nation under the current mm -hmm. birth and death rates, that we have got to find a way to resolve these biases in our country. Uh, and white people need to you know, take off the blinders a little bit, and we need to find a way for people, black and white, to be able to work together, tell the truth, uh, and find a way to put the vestiges of slavery behind us, uh, and really make the Civil Rights Act of 1964 come alive for everybody. Yeah. And there's a lot of work to do on both sides, Democrat, Republican, black and white working together. That's the whole idea behind Virginia's for reconciliation. Yes. Find common ground, get people who will uh, play well in the sandbox, 
look for solutions, even if we disagree vehemently yeah. politically. It, it's so much a matter of the heart yeah. for people black and white. Let's put it down. We're all Americans. That's why we come here. It's why people all over the world come here legally and illegally that want to be part of the American dream. Let's figure out the solutions. And, uh, you know, on a heart matter, it's getting churches to actually work together, sharing the pulpit, having congregations work together. It's having the Black Chamber of Commerce and the Chamber of Commerce uh, working together. It's myriad things like that. It's walking the Richmond Slave Trail. It's doing book clubs, reading the really controversial works of the day between lawyers and business people, and then talking about it. Yes. It's about relationships. It's not that complicated at one level, but with all the history, it can become very complicated. So it's the hardest thing I've ever done. But uh, I think it's uh, some of the most consequential work that people, black and white, Democrats and Republicans yeah. of goodwill, uh, better get about uh, because we've got to get a, do a better job. Yeah. We can beat any competent country economically or militarily, but we can also destroy ourselves by the incivility, the racial tension, and uh, that's not good for our country. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that you and I have talked about, and, and you've said this, I've said this, when I was governor, you said the same thing when you were governor, as long as people wanted to get something done, you could work with them. Yeah. It didn't matter whether they were Democrats, Republicans, liberals, conservatives. Talk well, a little bit. Democratic or Republican roads or jobs. You either get them done right. or you don't. You just got to get things at. done. You got to solve problems. Yeah. You've, you've always been, you've, you've been action-oriented. Talk a little bit about how we need to, for the next generation of, of political leaders, right, and, and, and the current ones, what is it that you would say to them about how you bring people together around, around these common issues, jobs, roads, education? These are things that people care about. Everybody in Virginia cared about them. And you've done a good job bringing people together again to have conversations who, who often wouldn't have done that. What, what would be your, your advice or lesson be? You know, the old saying of Ronald Reagan and yeah. Roosevelt and others was trite, trite but true. It's amazing how much you can get done if you don't care who gets the credit. Yes. There is so much credit to go around on yes. these victories for your state and it's so easy to toss it up and let other people take the credit on, on, on these things. But you know, um, I think the greatest trait of a leader is humility. Yes. And boy do we have a lack of that on both parties, I think, in Washington. But just, you know, look, be humble, come up with solutions, try to get people together, share the credit, give, uh, get the resources that you need in order to get something done. And uh, I think it's remarkable what you can get done across party lines. But I tell you, the, the toxicity of our, of our partisan divide now in Washington is a great impediment to getting these things done. And, you know, somebody's a humble servant leader who just wants to get stuff done, doesn't care about credit or yeah. political uh, acclaim can do a lot of things still in America, I think. Now, I know for you that that value of humility a lot of times is for you is rooted in your faith. Um, I happen to know you. You, you uh, pray every week with some of my Navy SEAL do. colleagues down there, yeah. down there in Virginia. Talk a little bit about how you were strengthened by your faith as you went through this incredibly difficult trial. I mean, this this was was, and when I say trial, I just don't mean the courtroom trial. I mean the lashing in public opinion, the lies that were told about you, the attacks on your family. How did your faith help to pull you through that? You know, I really appreciate you asking about that. I've been a person of faith since my parents raised me, but I never really understood that uh, that uh, proverb that we've discussed, Proverbs 3, you know, to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Yeah. When you're governor and you got all this power and resources, you start leaning on your own understanding. And you, it, It's hard to be humble sometimes, you know. Uh, but I just realized that when I was facing the, uh, the charges from the federal government, that there was nothing I could do about them or the press. 
And so I just kind of regrouped with uh, people of faith. They encouraged me. They bolstered me. And I started to realize there's only two things in life that matter. Uh, the two great commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. It's in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's in all the three great Abrahamic faiths, that principle. And, you know, when I did that, I was just amazed at how people, Democrat and Republican around the country, came to help me. I put my trust in the justice system and in God, and, of course, everything just worked out fine. And I can tell you, going through suffering really helps to increase your faith, and now I help other people that are going through their challenges. Well, we appreciate you, Bob. Thank, Thank you very much for joining Great us. Great to be on with Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Folks, that's Bob McDonald, uh, former governor of Virginia, who is joining us. Please stay right with us. We're going to be with John Solomon right after this. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Reitens. Now, one of our missions here is clear. That's to give you, our viewers, insight into stories that you won't find anywhere else, especially not in the mainstream media. Today, we're following a Just the News story that falls in line with our conversation with Bob McDonald about the Supreme Court. Specifically, it's a story about the confirmation of Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Just the News Editor-in-Chief John Solomon has reported that there's at least one Senate Republican that's planning to vote against Barrett's confirmation. That's Susan Collins, the senator from Maine. To break down this story and to provide some insight into that decision and some other Just the News stories, John Solomon is joining us on the set. John, thanks very much for Great joining us. Great to be with us. you, Eric. So Susan Collins is voting against Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Why? Yeah, not unexpected. This yeah. was a vote that uh, neither Mitch McConnell nor President Trump was counting on in this race. She's in a very tight re-election campaign up in Maine. It's a purple-blue state. And what she says is this isn't a statement about her about Judge Barrett's qualifications. It's simply an act of consistency. In 2016, she voted against President Obama's uh, nominee, Merrick Garland, from getting a hearing then. And she says, if I did it then during an election year, I need to be consistent now. I think this is her playing to her audience. She knows Maine very well, and she's trying to preserve that red seat for the Republicans in the Senate. And I think that's what this is mostly about. Now, on the flip side of it, there was a Republican senator who previously said she would not vote for Judge Barrett, and she flipped uh, flipped sides. Uh, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska is now saying she will vote for uh, Judge Barrett tonight in tonight's confirmation hearing. Cool. Well, let's uh, let's shift gears for just a moment. We sure. also have a story at JustTheNews.com written by Daniel Payne. Um, and folks, uh, Daniel Payne has a story out that has to do with a major study that's coming out of Denmark that questions the ability of face masks to actually stop the spread of, of COVID-19. Now, the study concluded in June, and the research from a team of, of Danish researchers followed 6,000 people. Half of them wore masks and, and half didn't. And while the study hasn't been published yet, there are strong hints that the study concluded that masks simply aren't helpful. Now, most Americans will remember that Dr. Anthony Fauci just a few months ago said that Americans should not wear masks. And in fact, he and other public health officials publicly implored people to not buy masks. They have, of course, changed their tune. And recently, countries like Germany and Spain, which have had mask mandates for months, 
have seen a rise in cases, which has led many people to further ask, where is the evidence that forcing people and children to wear masks actually makes sense? Now, according to reports, at least three elite medical journals so far, The Lancet, The New England Journal of Medicine, and The Journal of the American Medical Association are refusing to publish the study which counters conventional wisdom. Um, one of the researchers said that it'll be published as soon as a journal is brave enough to accept the paper. Now, John, we should be clear, the peer review process with these uh, uh, re major research right. papers can take months. They can. And they've, that one of the researchers said that the paper still is being considered, but it sounds like there's been a lot of resistance to publishing good research that counters the conventional wisdom here. That's the concern, and I think yeah. um, the mask, to mask or not to mask has been a big debate we've had all year. Yes. And as you pointed out, Dr. Fauci's been on both sides of the issue. The ev evolving thought in the scientific community is it does prevent some benefit, though not necessarily it's an, an absolute you know, protection, but it, yeah. it does provide some benefit. This study, we know the data from, right? Mm -hmm. Half and half, basically there, there was no outcome difference between the two different control groups. We do not know what the study's final conclusions were, right. but we assume from the way the uh, other journals are reacting right. that it probably is a negative reaction or a negative uh, recommendation on masks, and as a result, it doesn't get published. It's very similar to some of the things we're seeing going on in social media. If the powers in, uh, that mm -hmm. be do not want people to see these things, even if they're accurate, if they're peer-reviewed, they're just choke-pointing them at this point. They're canceling them out so we can't see this data. Yeah. This is probably going to turn out to be one of those free speech debates, just like Twitter and Facebook censoring some of the original data about Hunter Biden's business dealings. Yeah, I mean, and that, that really speaks to the, the point here, is that we've seen this year a tremendous amount of censorship. I mean, we saw Facebook and sure. Twitter refusing to actually publish stories about Hunter Biden's laptop, about right. emails that possibly implicated Joe Biden right. um, and, and the Biden family. And now it sounds like you've got major scientific journals, which are possibly, again, right. we're, we're gonna wait for all the facts to come out, possibly refusing to publish research that goes against the received conventional political wisdom. Yeah. Now, Daniel's been following this story for, for a long time at justthenews.com. Tell the viewers a little bit about some of the work he's been doing and what they can find at justthenews.com because people are, they're concerned about coronavirus. And, oh, and, sure. And, it and affects the all of our lives response. every day. Right? Yeah. It's closed our economy down. Yes. So Daniel has really worked hard to try to create balance in a, in a story that often leans one way in the yes. media. And so he's got experts across all different aspects of the world, yes. all different uh, expertise. And he's talking to them, and there's, what we're beginning to see is there's less and less consensus about whether the, mm -hmm. the path that we chose back in March and April, the yes. one that the public health scientists recommended to us, turns out to be the right path. And so very early on, he did some great research about Sweden yes. and its effort to go to herd immunity, not try to delay the spread of the virus, protect people uh, who are vulnerable, but let the re rest of the population live generally a normal life with some social distancing and some masks. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the media ignored that. Now the media is starting to pay attention to that. Why? because Sweden is dropping in its mortality rate, and it looks like that strategy is working. Those are the sort of stories you get with us here at justthenews.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
Welcome back to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Reitens. We're excited now to have our special guest with us, Sean Spicer. For nearly 30 years, former White House press secretary has given his time, energy, and effort to support the Republican Party. And whether that's been time spent working with various congressmen, the Republican National Committee, or his time in the White House. Nowadays, most people recognize Spicer as one of the most visible press secretaries in history. But that's not the only cool thing to know about Sean Spicer. In fact, you may not know that Spicer is also still an active commander in the United States Navy Reserve. And he's got a new book out, Securing America, Leading America, President Trump's Commitment to People, Patriotism, and Capitalism. And with the introduction out of the way, I'm very honored to welcome in former Press Secretary Commander Sean Spicer. Sean, tell us about Leading America, uh, this new book that you have out. Well, first, it's great to be with you. Congratulations on the show. Thank Thanks for having me. Uh, look, I think as we head into these final few days before the next election, the goal is to basically make sure people know what's at stake, simply put, what the headwinds are the conservatives face, what the policies are that the left is trying to enact, and why it's so important that we continue down the path of President Trump's policies and that people understand what we can be doing to fight back. Yeah. Now, Sean, you've worked in various media-facing roles throughout your career. I mean, obviously, most recently in, in your role with the White House. When you look back on that, how do you think that the media landscape has changed over the course of the past couple of decades? And how do you think that the media has treated President Trump relative to how they've, they've treated other presidents? I'll start with the latter first. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, look, I, I think it's what they've done is uh, there, there is a full-out visceral dislike of this president. That's probably putting it mildly and nice. Um, I, I've never seen the media so blatantly biased against a, a president and a party uh, as they are on this current president and uh, the current atmosphere that we face. So uh, it has never been like it has before. I actually have two chapters in the book that describe how these journalists are brought up in journalism school, how they're taught the mentors that they have, the kind of um, ideals that newsrooms press into them and why they are who they are. It's funny, when if, if for those who read the book, when you read the journal, the, the chapter on journalism, I, I beg to, you know, I, I bet you will have an aha moment and say, I get it now. I know why they are the way they are. Because when you realize how they're trained and what is valued in the industry uh, among their peers, you recognize uh, why they do what they do. And so it, it is it has become very personal to them. Uh, they you, you look at this Hunter Biden story and you say mm. to yourself, the mm. idea that the Times and the Washington Post won't even link to a story from the New York Post, the fourth oldest paper founded by Alexander Hamilton, that Twitter goes out and bans the New York Post from even posting on Twitter, and no one has a problem with it. That, that tells you, and these are the same people who, who talk about the freedoms of the press and the idea that we can't call anyone uh, you know, demean anyone in the media. And yet here's a paper being completely censored and no one at one of these mainstream media outlets wants to even speak up. Yeah, and Sean, do you, from your perspective, over the course of the past four years, do you think censorship's getting worse as big tech? You know, it's not just Washington Post, as you mentioned. You also had Twitter and Facebook actually refusing to allow people to share certain stories. Do you think that the censorship of conservatives is getting worse? By the day. And there's no question about it. You look at the number of people who get blocked out of their Twitter account mm. or can't retweet something because Twitter has deemed it something. Twitter has really jumped into the fray of deciding what work, what 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 gets out and what doesn't. 
they have protections under Section 230 of the Federal Decency Act that need to be revised immediately. And, and, and there's a chapter in the book called Tech Tyrants, and that's what they are. These, these people who have decided what information gets out, what information doesn't. They shadow ban conservatives, John June, other folks on the right, and, um, and, and they're pretty clear as to what side they're on. And it's amazing how and all of the action and incidents that occur seem to only occur on the right side of the ledger. It's never folks on the left that are, you know, having issues with their getting their, their accounts blocked or the material posted or reposted because the, the Twitter, you know, hierarchy and the tyrants that control them have been very clear as to what uh, what the agenda that they have is. Yeah. And so what's your advice to people who are who are readers of your book or who, who are our viewers about how they can make sure that they stay informed when they know that the mainstream media and big tech are censoring conservative views? It's, it's an absolutely phenomenal question because part of what the book does is it lays out what, what's where, you know, what's and your point about being informed. I think first and foremost, you need to understand the mechanisms, how mm. corporate America is being run, how Hollywood is being run, how uh, big tech is being run in journalism. Once you understand that, so much more makes sense. You know, I lay out in the um, in the book that it overlooks its own self-interest because they'll overlook profit, they'll over overlook audience size, all because it something doesn't conform right. to a far left agenda, and it, it would promote something and that's in you know the antithesis of them, i.e., conservative principles. And once you understand um, how they operate, it makes a lot more sense. And so my my suggestion would be to to inform yourself of how these institutions are comprised so that you can fight back. Because one of the things that's interesting in each chapter, mm. I talk about some way in which conservatives are fighting back and winning. And maybe it's a school board in Portland that's overcoming some of the K through 12 uh, left wing curriculum that's occurring. But I also talk about how Charlie Kirk and Turning Point USA groups and mechanism and peers that really can help shed some insight into how we can win on these issues. Good. Hey, Sean, you know, real quick, uh, you also, you continue to serve as in the Navy Reserve, as we mentioned. You're also involved in a number of, of veterans charities. We have a lot of viewers who are big supporters of the military. Take just a minute to tell our viewers a little bit about the work you continue to do with, with veterans today. So I'm on the board of two institutions, the Independence Fund, and the Independence Fund generally is focused on providing veterans with mobility issues um, the tools to, to move forward. So we, primarily through track chairs, there are these $16,000 wheelchairs that look like big tanks, and they allow um, a soldier who may have mobility issues either just in general or have lost a, mm -hmm. a leg or two, the ability to you know, go hunting or fishing or go through a park in a way that they, they might not be able right. to, uh, you know, if someone wasn't pushing them. And then the other one is the Yellow Ribbon Fund, which is another great um, uh, organization that helps the caregivers of the wounded, meaning so many times the, a soldier will have an operation and their spouse or their caregiver will want to travel with them. The cost mm -hmm. to go to Bethesda or another hospital, as you know, and that can cost thousands of dollars, Yellow Ribbon Fund, full bill. Awesome. Well, Sean, we, we appreciate your continued service in the Navy. We appreciate uh, your continued support for, for veterans. Folks, the book is Leading America by Sean Spicer, former White House press secretary. It's available now. And we'll be right back on Actionable Intelligence in just a minute. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Remember the riots? Remember the looting? Remember the plague of violence, murder, arson, and assault across the country? Well, it's still happening. The mainstream media may have stopped covering it. They've moved on to their latest set of obsessions. But the families of children dead from shootings and violence, they remember. The families of police officers murdered and assaulted, officers attacked and blinded, they remember. The families of people beaten in the street who now live with lifelong injuries, they remember. The business owners who lost everything to arsonists, they remember, and so do we. This has come about because of the violent, destructive, abusive war against police launched by the left. And as leftists across America continue to launch attacks on police officers, it's worth asking why. Well, the answer is simple. The police are the protection between you, your family, and the leftist mob. That mob and the herd of yellow journalists who do their bidding are trying to destroy the basic deal that you, as a tax-paying citizen, can rely on the support, the protection, and the response of the police. The left wants to rule by fear and intimidation, impose their will by threat and harassment. And they know that there is no faster, no sure way to destroy confidence in the very idea of America than to destroy the basic bargain made between citizens and their government. The American Constitution is rooted in the basic idea that one of the reasons why people give their consent to the government is expressly because the government can provide some measure of protection for them. John Locke expressed the idea clearly when he said that we the people voluntarily agree to be governed for the simple reason that in government our lives, our liberty, and property could be better protected. Thomas Hobbes said that without government, human beings lived in a world in which their lives were nasty, brutish, and short. I've served as a Navy SEAL in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, and as a humanitarian volunteer in the former Yugoslavia, Cambodia, Zaire, Rwanda. And I can tell you, in places where there is no government or weak government, the depraved and vicious, the wicked and violent, freely prey on good people. And now, we're seeing it here at home. The mobs, the riots, the people in prayer being assaulted, elderly couples enjoying a meal who are attacked. Look, before we had a country, we had police. In Boston, in 1635, settlers established a night watch. It was manned by volunteers. About 70 years later, in 1703, members of the night watch were first paid, 35 shillings a month, and the profession of policing on the continent began. Policing was woven into the tapestry of American government from our founding. In 1786, Sheriff Benjamin Branch of Chesterfield County, Virginia, became the first known law enforcement officer to give his life in the line of duty. 
In 1789, President George Washington created the first federal law enforcement officers when he appointed 13 U.S. Marshals. Today in America, police remain under assault. They're assaulted with bricks and bottles, fireworks and Molotov cocktails. They're assaulted by dishonest prosecutors who charge them with crimes when they are clearly just doing their jobs. They're assaulted by the left-wing media who distort facts beyond comprehension, who use words like mostly peaceful to describe arson. We do not have to be passive in the face of this violence. Let police know that you appreciate them. Support law enforcement organizations that care for the widows and children of fallen officers and those that buy essential safety equipment for officers on duty. Put a thin blue line sticker on your car, a sign in your yard. These seem like small things, but remember this. The left works by fear and intimidation. When we take action, we build courage. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. And now let's take a look at one of the stories making headlines today at justthenews.com. You'll see it right here. Editor-in-Chief John Solomon is reporting on recently declassified government documents suggesting that the FBI opened its most recent investigation of Paul Manafort in January of 2016. It was two months before President Trump hired the lobbyist as a senior official on his campaign. Head over to justthenews.com to find out why the FBI didn't release this information as they should have to the Trump campaign. And tune in tomorrow for Actionable Intelligence. We've got an awesome show lined up for you, including our interview with Duck Dynasty, Dynasty star Phil Robertson. He's a lot of fun. We'll talk about faith, family, and politics and get a feel for what he's seeing as the election day draws near. And before we go, we wanted to leave with a story that our team here at Actionable Intelligence thinks is pretty cool. It's a beautiful world out there, and this next video proves it. Check this out. We've all seen pictures of the Aurora Borealis before. Some people refer to it as the Northern Lights. But this light show, captured over Sweden on Friday evening, is one of the most impressive displays of Northern Lights I've ever seen. An experienced stargazer was on a road trip when he captured this site in a forest in northern Sweden. For those who don't know, the auroras are the result of disturbances in the atmosphere caused by solar wind. All you really need to know, though, is that they're pretty awesome. And it's a little reminder that we live in a beautiful world. Uh, we're excited to be back with you tomorrow night. If you haven't had a chance, go out and check out our Blue Courage special. It's still available at justthenews.com. And we'll be back in, uh, to see you tomorrow night. See you in a few.